Okay, welcome back. Good morning. And uh, today is Thursday again. Hey, hey. <laughs> Thursday, August 12, class 10, reading um, teachings of Nisargadatta. Maharaj and reminiscences of David Godman, uh, devotee, student, uh, seeker, author, uh, teacher in his own right. Midway through page seven, uh, I want to review, read again, and I'm going to stay with the reminiscences uh, for today. Possibly read uh, more of Nisargadat's quotes. Uh, on that other page, innerquest.org, starting from 50, last week, last time, or before we went up through 49, uh, teachings on Advaita Vedanta, uh, Nisargadat's brand, or his own uh, realization, you know, the teachings uh, associated with his realization. Whatever realization it is, I don't know, but clearly um, he's finished, or nearly finished with the path, and uh, they're very useful teachings. And, you know, again, like um, like in Changsu, we see a distinction between uh, what's called the, the Tao of a sage and the... Oh, shit. The Tao of a sage and the uh, talent of a sage. Just a moment. Jesus Christ. I have had a snake issue. Yes, I I have had uh, snakes in my house (laughs) in the last week. What happened was um, Mama Snake, who's a Taiwan beauty snake, who's about six feet long and about as thick as my arm, appeared uh, last year here and there in front of the house, behind the house. They don't, they're not venomous. Some of them, some people like them. And uh, I believe she's given birth to some children recently. They emerge about 12 inches long, uh, very thin, uh, not venomous, no teeth, I think. And now they appear (laughs) different places in my room. And so uh, this is the final frontier for me, is uh, making peace with uh, snakes, indoor snakes, uh, who uh, go freely. But they don't really go anywhere too far from the windows. So I've now seen this long, black, thick line in front of me, which happens to be the next baby snake. They have, they're they good at eating mice and rats, and uh, I think my attic has now been freed of, uh, has been cleared out of any residual mice, um, and the babies are getting ready to move on the out, onto the out, into the big world. So I have a, I am a beauty snake nursery here in my attic and now coming out in my main room so this is the final frontier getting close to the end perhaps so I don't know who's next but uh, alright we just hope for the best and I just tell them don't come eat me and I think they have no interest in that anyway but it is bizarre to see a snake uh, right in front of me about 10 feet away so I will do my best because I can't uh, I don't want to end the class right now and grab him and throw him away, throw him out to another location. <laughs> uh, 
So I'll just uh, do my best to stay focused while I'm watching snaky movements in front of me. <clears throat> all right, all right. So, mm-hmm. Everybody's got their training. Uh, Mid-page seven, remembering Nisargadat Maharaj from David Godman, Harriet was asking him, how long did it take you to summon up the courage to start dialogue with him when you finally went to him? And he's really talking about, uh, David explains um, his, um, he, he's, he, he asks about his performance of uh, Aham Vichar, Aham Vichara, self-inquiry, which is taught by Rama, Ramana Maharshi. And um, uh, that was, uh, he, he had stayed many years at the Ramanashramam in southern India. And I think he may still be there now, actually. He's still alive, I believe, David Godman. And uh, it's just interesting, the dialogue between the two of them or... or uh, a a kind of presentation of what David was how he was practicing aham vichar and how uh, Nisargadat replies or what he says and I you know commented a bit last time uh, I just want to read it through again say a couple things and then keep moving through the reminiscences here so David said in terms of when did you summon up the courage to go and talk to him he said I think it was the next day. In the afternoon session, that means I must have sat through two full sessions just listening to what other people had to say and to what Maharaj had to say to them. Eventually, when there was a lull in the conversation, I asked, he said, I've been doing self-inquiry, trying to keep attention on the inner feeling of I for several years. But no matter how intensively I try to do it, I don't find that my attention stays on the I for more than a few seconds. There doesn't seem to be any improvement in my ability to keep my attention on this inner feeling of I. Do the periods of being aware of the I have to get longer and longer until they become more or less continuous? Eh, and um, to me, that's just, that, that that's not really correct practice, but correct technique, but, you know, some people do that, and I think they just end up trying to think about they're trying to focus on a feeling of, of I-ness. Yet, mm, true nature is beyond feeling and thought. It is. It's tat. It's, it's tat. It's such. Tat vamasi. Not, not you know, manasic <laughs> vamasi. So, anyway, Nisargadat replies, no, meaning um, it doesn't have to get longer and longer. He said, no, Nisargadat replied, no, just having the strong urge to seek this I and investigate it is enough. Don't worry about how well or how long you're holding on to it. The strong desire to know the I will keep you taking, will keep taking you back to it when your attention strays. If something is important to you, it keeps coming back up in your mind. If knowing the I is important to you, you'll find yourself going back to it again and again. And it's very interesting that <clears throat> Nisargadat didn't really teach Aham Vichar as Ramana Maharshi did, as far as I know. He's not saying don't do that practice. He's um, like Nityananda, sort of saying, uh, f 
um, formal technique or rigid rigidity of technique is not the way, um, but rather um, the intensity of feeling uh, to make a realization to know true nature because that's what the I is, right? I, the, the nature of eyes are is so called true nature. The snake is now climbing up the window <laughs> in the. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, uh, this is not a place to be squeamish. This is a uh, training against squeamishness. So, um, if it's something important, if anything's important, as Nisargadat says, it keeps coming up in your mind. If freedom uh, is important, um, one will be keenly aware of how one is not free. And... Um, address uh, recognizing how I'm binding, how I am bound. I'm bound by continual thinking. I'm bound by certain ways of thinking. I'm bound by certain reflexive ways of reacting. Uh, I'm bound by assumptions that, that normally I'm not even aware of, my assumptions, presumptions. Uh, if one loves freedom one will continually um, be aware of how one's not there. Uh, be aware of the contrast between freedom and boundedness, or binding, or fetter, right? Fetters, ten fetters. Ten fetters are the ten aspects of how we're not free. And <clears throat> uh, same thing with the story of uh, Nityananda when he was a youth from somebody who commented on YouTube, um, saying that he was, or his friends or family or someone was going to school in southern India when Nityananda was in, in the teenage years. I mean, I guess he was a teenager, right? So, uh, where he was saying, don't, you know, when are you going to stop your pranayama practice and let God take over? Uh, there is um, an approach to practice that prevents uh, attainment. There are various approaches to practice that people get involved in that prevents attainment. Particularly a deep view that um, practice makes attainment. And I need to do more practice, and if I don't do practice, then I can't have attainment. Or I need to do a certain quantity of practice. Or the practice has to be uh, held in a certain way, a certain attachment to the forms of practice. Uh, so there are many examples of that, but what's, what's truly important, we continually return to or continually comes up in mind. And um, attainment is not a thing, and tatsat is not a state of mind. It's actually freedom from states of mind. It's actually radical freedom from desire, but not fully, actually. <laughs> there's the freedom, there's the desire... For freedom and the desire to know true nature. Uh, in general, I think the desire to to for freedom, moksha, mukti, liberation, is uh, a better uh, basis of approach than the desire to find true self. Because the motivation of seeking freedom or release is pain. Dukkha is the basis of sukkha, of seeking sukkha. 
you know, dukkha, continual, the very fine sensitivity to dukkha and, and boundedness, fettered, being fettered, not being free, not being well, being in distress or dismay in some way. I mean, that's where I was coming from strongly as I, based, as I began practice. Um, that is a very fine motivator. I'm in pain. Um, but some kind of sense of, I'd like to find myself. I have a strong urge to seek my I, to seek true nature. It's just, it's a bit academic, which means it's not visceral. The motivation is commonly not visceral. Visceral motivation definitely uh, is a strong awareness of dukkha and, and, and uh, boundedness or lack of freedom, binding. This is very just interesting points. Anyway, going on, David says, After that, I think I talk to him almost every day, mostly about various aspects of his teachings on consciousness. He seemed to encourage questions from me, and I always enjoyed quizzing him. However, the exact details of the questions and answers seem to have slipped through the cracks of my memory. It's not that important. A little baby is trying to get outside right now. I see a, a squirming wor- a squirming snake on different sides of the window, trying to figure out how to get back, how to get out into nature. It's quite a trip, I must say. Harriet then says, All this talk about Ramana Maharshi has reminded me of something else I wanted to ask. We started off this after- afternoon with a question about Maha- why Maharaj isn't the topic of memoirs, at least book-length ones. It's very interesting. A few people have written short accounts, but I've never come across a full-length book about living with him. Many of Ramana Maharshi's books are filled with stories of miraculous events that seem to be taking place around him. Many of his devotees tell stories of how faith in Bhagwan Ramana changed their lives or somehow in, a, in an improbable way transformed their destiny. I know that Bhagwan himself disowned all personal responsibility for these events, but that didn't stop people from writing them down and attributing them to Bhagwan's grace. And so again, like Nityananda, saying God does it all. I didn't do it, God did it. Because who's the I anyway, right? I mean, these guys are attained or finished, and so they realize that true nature is not separate from Tatsat. Tatsat is not a personal matter, right? Jivatman, that one with Paramatman, is no longer a personal matter. Uh, personal, personalism ends at higher self. Like Nisargadatta like said, the, the second stage after self-realization is the death of that self. But there's no solid self to die. So the Yani realizes there's no self that is, has been realized. <laughs> so what is self-realization? Eh. Well, it's actually non-duality. But then in non-duality, there is some sense of an I. And yet that I is what? Well... Nisargadat would say that the second stage of the Yani's uh, attainment is realizing one's own death. But there's not a thing to be died, to die. It's the belief that it's a substantial thing that dies. The sense that, I mean, Ra saying, just the same. Ra saying they go from sixth density, higher self, Atman, to seven. And therefore, and at that point, they um, drop memory and identity. Well... If you drop memory going into seventh density, that's because um, identity was never a substantial reality 
that was being experienced. It was a flickering, you know, it was a fire flaming that the fuel of ignorance um, and the basis of restlessness and all that, the, the ninth fetter, tenth fetters, as the fuel for the eighth fetter, conceit or tanhamanas or craving, craved, mentally fashioned identity, uh, self, the unified self-consciousness, I is one, all is one, all is one, I is this one. Not, that's pretty nice, that's non-duality. But there's an experience of subjectivity in that non-duality, and so it's actually not really fully non-duality. It's a unified sense of self, unified subjectivity, a unity, unified identity. That has to be dropped too for beings leaving the Atmanic level to go to Paramatman. And so uh, we're talking about the transit, as I said, from six to eight. And then they know that what is I, or what is this one here, like Nityananda said, and so then they'll say, I didn't do it, God did it. Well, yes, but they were the agency through which the Logoic action occurred. In any case, David goes on, uh, I suppose, or Harriet goes on, I suppose my question is, did similar things happen around Maharaj, and if they did, why did no one ever bother to write them down? Why wasn't uh, Nisargadot the focus of memoirs similar to the several books written about um, Ramana Marshi? David said, I don't know how common such events were, the miraculous, but I know what they did that they did happen, and if similar things did happen to other people, I really don't know why those who know about these events don't want to write them down. Okay. He goes on, Let me redress the balance by telling one very long and very lovely story. At some point in the late 1970s, I was asked to take a South American woman called Anna Marie to Bombay and look after her because she hardly spoke a word of English. Her native language was Spanish, and I think she lived in Venezuela but I have a vague memory that this wasn't her nationality. I was planning to go to Bombay anyway to see Maharaj, so I agreed to take her and look after her. Very early on in our journey, we were still in Madras in the south, I realized that I'd been given a bit of a basket case to look after. Anna Marie was completely incapable of looking after herself. This is one type of uh, seeker who comes to gurus. And incredibly forgetful before, probably a wanderer, before we had even managed to get on the train to Bombay, she managed to lose all her money and her passport. By retracing our steps, we eventually tracked them down to a bookstore near the station. Miraculously, the manager had found the purse and had kept it with him in case we came back looking for it. A few hours into our train journey from Madras to Bombay, Anna Marie went to the bathroom. On Indian trains, that means a squat toilet which is just a hole in the floor with foot trests on either side of it. Anna Marie was sitting there doing her business when the train jolted on the tracks. Her glasses fell off and disappeared down the hole in the floor. It turned out to be her only pair, and without them she was more or less blind. I realized this later in the day when we stopped at a station further down the line. Anna Marie was standing on the platform when the train started to pull out of the station. She made no move to get on. When I realized what was happening, I jumped off and pushed her onto the moving train, so neither can she see the train or know that she needs to get on. I had already realized that she was having trouble seeing things, but I didn't realize how badly 
how bad things really were until I discovered that she couldn't see a moving train with about 25 carriages that was about 10 feet in front of her. I knew that was my first priority once we got to Bombay uh, to get her a new pair of glasses. I remembered that there was an optician quite near to Maharaj's house. I had noticed it on the previous trips while I was waiting to catch a bus to go downtown. Early the next morning, as soon as the shop opened, I took her in to get her eyes tested and to get her some glasses. The test took a long time, partly because of Anna Marie's deficiency in English, partly because the optician couldn't work out what her prescription was. About half an hour after that, he came out and said, she needs to go to a specialist eye hospital. I can't find out with my instruments here what her prescription might be. There's something seriously wrong with her eyes, but I don't know what it is. Take her to such and such eye hospital. Whatever the name was, I'd never heard of it. He started to give me directions, but since I didn't know Bombay, I wasn't able to follow them. This was when the first miracle of the day happened. It was to be the first of many. Don't worry, said the optician. I'll take you there myself. He closed his store. Uh, there were no assistants to man the counter while we were away. And we set off on a walk across Bombay. We must have walked over a mile before we finally arrived at the hospital. He took us to the office of an eye surgeon he knew there and explained that his instruments were not sophisticated enough to work out what was wrong with Anna Marie's eyes. He then left us and went back to his store. <clears throat> I've encountered many acts of kindness in all the years I've been in India, but I still marvel at this shop owner who closed down his store for a couple of hours and then went on a two-mile round-trip walk just to help us out. The eye surgeon set to work on Anna Marie's eyes, even he was impressed by how complicated her eyes were. He tried her out on several machines and gadgets, but like the optician before him, he failed to come up with a prescription. What's wrong with this woman? he asked. How did she end up with eyes like these? I shrugged my shoulders. I have no idea. I barely know her, and she hardly speaks any English. <laughs> She's just a great catalyst for the people around her. We went off to a different part of the hospital that, to my untrained eye, seemed to have bigger and fancier machines. This new combination of equipment finally came up with a reading for Anna Marie. Our curiosity had been piqued by this long, complicated process, so we tried, through sign language and the few English words she knew, to discover how Anna Marie's eyes had come to be so peculiar. After a few false starts, she realized what we were asking. It turned out that she'd fallen out of a building in South America and had landed on her face. Having watched her behavior and activities in the previous two days, I found this to be an entirely believable scenario. I don't think I've ever come across a woman who was so accident-prone. <laughs> I, I knew somebody like that, too, and she had a negative entity attachment. Her eyes had been damaged in the fall and had been stitched in various places. As a result of this surgery, there were places on the eyeball that had a very eccentric curvature. This accounted for the first optician's inability to work out what she needed. Even the big eye hospital took almost an hour to figure out what she needed. I got to walking or talking to the eye surgeon and discovered that we had a mutual acquaintance in Tiruvannamalai in the south. I think that might be the Ramanashramam location. In fact, he knew quite a few of Bhagwan's devotees. Like the optician before him, he decided to take us under his wing. Where will you go to get this prescription filled? he asked. Well, 
The first man we went to, the one who brought us here, was very helpful to us. I'd like to go back to him to give him the business since he was so kind to us. No, no, said the surgeon. He only has a little shop. He won't be able to fill, fulfill an order like this. It's too complicated. I will take you to the biggest optician in Bombay. He too closed down his office. I think the snake has jumped outside or something. He too closed down his office and took us on another trip across Bombay. As we walked through the front door of the store he was taking us to, everyone jumped to attention. He was clearly a very respected figure in the eye world. These are my friends, he announced, waving at us. They have a difficult prescription to fulfill. Please do it as quickly as possible, because this woman can't see anything without glasses. She's virtually blind. <laughs> She's very bold to travel to India that way. He left us in the hands of the manager of the store and went back to the hospital. The manager's big beaming smile lasted as long as it took to read the prescription. He put it down on the counter and started to talk to us very apologetically. Normally, we keep lenses for every possible prescription here in the store. We have a huge turnover, so we can afford to make and keep lenses that, have no, that we have no customers for. Sooner or later, somebody will come and buy them, and everybody appreciates the fact that they can get what they want on the spot without having to wait for anything to be made. But this prescription is such a ridiculous combination, no one ever would think of making it or keeping it. Until I saw it myself, I would have guessed that nobody in the world had eyes that correspond with these numbers. We'll have to make a special order, and that'll take a long time, because the glass grinders are out on strike at the moment. Even if they go back to work, it'll probably be weeks before we can get them We can get them to make an order like this, because they already have a lot of pending orders. I'm sorry, I can't help you, and nobody else in the city will be able to help you either, because this prescription is just too unusual for anyone to stock. This apology took about five minutes to deliver. While it was going on, one of the boys from the store, who obviously didn't know any English, picked up the paper and went to the storeroom to look for the lenses. That was his job, to pick up the prescriptions from the front office and find the corresponding lenses in the storeroom. Just as the manager was coming to his conclusion, the boy reappeared with two lenses that exactly corresponded to the numbers on the prescription. The manager was absolutely flabbergasted. He said, that is not possible. No one would make and keep lenses like these. He finally adjusted the impossibility, adjusted to the impossibility by saying that somebody must have ordered these lenses long ago and had forgotten to collect them. <laughs> or uh, Nisargadat uh, appeared them. Because we had been declared friends of the great and famous eye surgeon from the hospital, we'd only known him for about two hours, we were given a massive discount and about half an hour later, Anna Marie walked out of the store wearing what I would absolutely, what I was absolutely convinced was the only pair of spectacles on planet Earth that she could actually see the world through. Now, was there a miracle in there, or were we, were we just the fortunate recipients of an amazingly serendipitous sequence of events? Who can say? And he goes on. I decided to pick... <laughs> I... It's funny he puts that in quotes. I decided to pick the initial optician who agrees to close down his score, close down his store, and take us to the one surgeon in town who happens to be interested in Ramana. Yeah, right. So now he's talking about how strange the thing was. He said that I 
the eye, decided to pick the initial optician who agrees to close down his store and take us to the one eye surgeon in town who happens to be interested in Ramana, Marshi, who then takes us against my wishes to the only store in Bombay where lenses can be found for Anna Marie. I'm a bit of a skeptic, and in my jaundiced opinion, there are too many good things in that sequence to be attributed to chance alone. And David goes on, My own belief is that when you go to the guru, the power of that guru takes care of any physical problems that may arise. He doesn't do it knowingly. There's just an aura around him that takes care of all these problems. We never even told Maharaj about Anne-Marie's glasses. When we set off that morning, I just assumed that she had fairly normal eyes and that within half an hour or so we'd be able to buy some glasses that would bring the world into focus. But this was not the end of the story. I told you it was a long one. Anna-Marie was sitting with Maharaj every day for about a week, but of course she couldn't understand a word of what was going on. There was no one there who spoke Spanish. Then, one morning, she appeared very red-eyed, and I asked her what was the matter. I was up all night, she said, in very broken English, praying for a Spanish translator to come today. There is something I have to tell Maharaj, and I need a translator to do it. Later that morning, as we were all sitting in a cafe on Grant Road in the interval between the end of the bhajans, the, the chanting, and the beginning of the question-and-answer session, we noticed that a new foreign face at an adjoining table uh, was there, a woman who was reading a copy of Tatvamasi. I am that, or I is such. We introduced ourselves and discovered that, surprise, surprise, she was a professional Spanish-English translator who worked in Bombay and who had recently come across Maharaj's teachings. She had decided in a general sort of way to come and visit Maharaj, but only that morning did her general urge translate into positive action. Anna Marie, of course, was over the moon. The translator she had spent all night praying for had miraculously manifested on the next table to her about 15 minutes before the question-and-answer session started. It's pretty miraculous. We all went back to Maharaj's room, curious to find out what Anna Marie wanted to say to him. This is more or less what she had to say via the translator. She said, I was living in Venezuela when I had a dream of a mountain and two men. I found out soon afterwards that one of the two men was Ramakrishna, but for a long time I didn't know who the other man was or what the mountain might be. Then, last year, I saw a photo of Ramana Maharshi and realized that this was the second man in the dream. When I did some research to find out more about him, I soon realized that the mountain in the dream was Arunachala, Arunachala, that's the uh, mountain where Ramana Harshi did a lot of practice and a lot of sages or yogis are there. In the dream, Ramana Maharshi looked at me in a very special way and transmitted a knowledge of his teachings to me. He didn't do it verbally. He just looked at me as if he was looking or and as he was looking. I just felt that he was filling me up with an understanding of his teachings, a knowledge that I could articulate quite clearly, even though no words had passed between us. I knew that I had to come to India to find out more about him. I persuaded a friend of mine to bring me here, even though I knew that Ramana Maharshi was no longer alive. I knew I had some business here, and something was compelling me to come. While I was in Tiruvannamalai, I heard about you, meaning um, Nisargadatta, and I knew that I had to come and see you as well. 
That same compulsion had maybe come to India to find out about Ramana Maharshi has made me come here as well. I don't know what it is, but I knew that I had to come. <clears throat> uh, Maharaj interceded at this point. What were the teachings that were transmitted to you in the dream? What did Ramana Maharshi tell you as he was revealing his teachings in silence? So what was the nature what was the nature of the communication through the silence? Anna Marie talked in Spanish for about five minutes without any translation being given by the interpreter. At the end of that period, the translator began to explain what she had said. <coughs> we all sat there, absolutely dumbfounded. She gave a perfect and fluent five-minute summary of Maharaj's teachings. Uh, Misargadat, I guess. And so she said, <laughs> he goes on, they were quite clearly not Ramana's teachings, but Maharaja's, meaning Nisargadat's. That's interesting. So, <laughs> she's having a dream of Ramana Maharshi and Ramakrishna or someone else. She's getting some kind of a silent transmission from Ramana. The teachings actually happen to be a summary of Nisargadat's teachings, however. <clears throat> so, <laughs> David says, uh, goes on, they were quite clearly not Ramana's teachings, but Maharaja's and this woman was giving a wonderful presentation of them. I think it was one of the best five-minute summaries of the teachings I'd ever heard. And remember, <clears throat> this was from a woman who was on her first visit, someone who had very little acquaintance with Maharaj's teachings before coming there that day. Maharaj seemed to be impressed, as impressed as everyone else there. He stood up, took Anna Marie downstairs, and initiated her into the mantra of his lineage by writing it on, his, on her tongue with his finger. I mentioned earlier that he would volunteer to give out the mantra if anybody wanted it. If someone asked for it, he would ordinarily whisper it in his or her ear. This is the only case I know in which he gave out the mantra without being first asked. And it's the only instance I know of in which he wrote it with his finger on a devotee's tongue. The mantra here... Uh, this mantra may be one, just a few syllables of Sanskrit. I'm not sure. What does it all mean? David so goes on. I have absolutely no idea. I have long since trying to give up. I've long since given up trying to guess or rationalize why gurus do the things they do. Uh, real gurus, they have a purpose in all of that stuff. <clears throat> and it's a real shame in the West or commonly around the world. Uh, you've got a lot of fraudulent gurus and um, teachers in different traditions. Depends, depends. But you have fake gurus and yogis. You have fake, uh, you know, corrupt Rinpoches. You have corrupt Roshis, Japanese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. You, in Thailand, <clears throat> you have some corrupt Ajans or, or monks, but not so many because the rules are tight. You have uh, corruption all over the place, uh, fake living Buddhas and things like that. And they do whatever they want, but they're corrupt. <laughs> and so <clears throat> they may do crazy things or strange things that are strange to the observer. And those with faith who believe in him, her, think, oh, well, uh, I've given up trying to guess or rationalize why Guru, my teacher, does the things he, she does. Meanwhile, that actually is a fraudulent teacher or they're uh, greedy and dishonest. Uh, 
And nobody seems to know that um, until a scandal appears or there's a fall from grace, if that even appears or occurs. So, <clears throat> meanwhile, <clears throat> it's very true. And uh, Trungyam Trungpa talked about crazy wisdom, <clears throat> crazy wisdom lineage or something, <clears throat> that, that explains why he did some of the things he did. Meanwhile, he had some real problem, Trungpa Rinpoche. I mean, he died of alcohol liver cirrhosis, and his uh, successor, the regent, uh, in, died of AIDS, whatever that is, and uh, infected or something uh, multiple students in the community. That's a problem, you know. And the successor of the regent in the Shambhala, Vajrayana, you know, Dharmadhatu organization of Trungpa Rinpoche uh, just got thrown out. The Sakyong, the son of Trungpa Rinpoche, got thrown out by his own people because of scandal. So it's all over the place. It's Tibetan Rinpoches, Japanese Roshis, more than a few, have had scandal. Some more than a few yogis and gurus, Hindu, you know, uh, yogic tradition. Um, And they did things that would be hard to figure out. Uh, And those that had faith in them rationalized them or believed, well, that's just crazy wisdom. That's just what the guru great... Our great finished master does. <clears throat> and then later it was found out, oh my God, they were embezzling money or abusing children or abusing people or dot, dot, dot. Oh, I, Ray, I see. It isn't crazy wisdom. It's just called, you know, criminality or uh, fraud. Meanwhile, a great teacher like Nityananda or Nisargadat or Ramana will commonly do things that nobody around them understands. Um, and where's the proof that they're attained and the other guy isn't? The scandal doesn't prove that he has no wisdom. The scandal proves that he, his morality is damaged. Meanwhile, you know, the way of the sage and the talent of the sage, some of them, that's where the snake came in. Uh, there, are, there are beings of great attainment that don't deal with students so well. There are beings, teachers that deal with students really well, but they don't have a final attainment. Okay, fine. But scandal comes out of immorality, and their talent comes out of wisdom. The talent is their capacity for teaching, uh, and that's of the subtlety of love wisdom, really, or love wisdom blend in knowing the mind of the student and um, skillful means, upaya. Meanwhile, that's not the same as uh, attainment. So there can be high attainment and low skill, or high skill and lower attainment. There's some attainment if there's some skill, meaning a wisdom in teaching. But unfortunately, um, until you can see clearly <laughs> uh, the presumed crazy wisdom of a teacher... Uh, may not be easily determined, uh, easily discerned as either uh, brilliant, skillful means in service and helping, or the mark of a charlatan. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Harriet goes on. That's a great story. So, would you say that Maharaj was looking after the welfare of devotees in the same way that other great gurus were? David said, I would answer a conditional yes to that question. Yes, because it's the nature of enlightened beings to be like this. They don't have any choice in the matter because these things go on around them automatically. That's a very important aspect. 
However, on a more superficial level, the answer might be no. If people took their personal problems to him, he might get angry and said that that was none of his business. He didn't perceive himself as someone who dealt with individual people who had problems. Now, personally, I don't, wouldn't hold that against him at all. You know, who cares what I think? But who cares what you think? <laughs> so, if nobody cares what I think, then why should they care what you think? Meaning, I have my opinion, you have your opinion, everybody has their opinion. Okay. Personally, to me, for my little opinion, I don't personally think that that's a problem that he doesn't perceive himself as someone who dealt with people who had problems. Meaning, different teachers have different approaches, and they're not not one teacher fits every type of approach or every every seeker who approaches them. Uh, so anyway, David goes on, I saw several people go to tell him that they had all their money or their passport stolen, and his standard response was to tell them off for being careless. I told him once that I was worried about how much I was sleeping. At the time, though, I did think this was a legitimate spiritual question because I had read many teachers who had said that it was bad to sleep a lot. That's commonly true. Meanwhile, <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't sleep enough. His answer, though, was, quote, Why are you bringing me your medical problems? If you think it's a problem, go and see a doctor. And so, <clears throat> okay, I'll just complete this. He goes on, in, David goes on, In that particular case, his advice turned out to be perfectly correct. I discovered later that I was suffering from a major infestation of hookworm, almost certainly as a result of walking around India for years with no footwear. Hmm. Hookworms eat red blood cells, and if they get out of control, they eat more than the body can produce. Eventually, you get very anemic, which means feeling tired and sleepy all the time. So, in this particular case, what appeared to be a cranky, dismissive answer was the most useful thing he could say. Hmm. I would say that the self, quote, S, capital S, I would say that the self put the right words into his mouth at the right moment, but at neither, but at the time, neither of us knew just how right they were. That's interesting. And the final, his final statement on that is, despite his generally irritable response when people went to him for personal help, I think he was fully aware that he was, I think he was fully aware that he was looking after all devotees' well-being, even though it might not have looked that way a lot of the time. <clears throat> so that's a presumption, which may be true. Uh, I'm not here to evaluate Nisargadat's attainment. Definitely not. I'm here to freely share my, my reactions to reading. That does include um, my sense of where he's coming from in terms of attainment or what's going on here in general. Uh, personally, I don't, I don't really see it as a problem that... Uh, I don't see it as consistent with a final attainment even, that a great teacher, if they have a final attainment, doesn't want to answer every question that everybody brings. You know, some people are very needy and selfish. I mean, it's just true. Some people, we, we can be needy and selfish. And some people uh, feed needy and selfish, and some of them go to gurus, or teachers, or psychologists, or friends, or family. And they want more, and more, and more, and more. Some people do. Not many, but some. They want more, and more, and more, and more, and more. 
They ask a question, they get answered, they go on to the next question, they get another answer, they ask the next question. They just want engagement, attention, need. They, they have a need for personal connection, a craving for connectedness. Okay, fine. But uh, that's also called selfish, meaning they're not necessarily thinking about the other guy or the teacher that they claim to respect. So, <clears throat> you know, Nisargadot opened his house uh, and some of the people who came in um, just probably wanted his magical uh, intervention to help them find a lost passport. <coughs> they lost their money, they lost their passport, <clears throat> and uh, maybe they wanted him to tell me where it is so I can go get it. And absolutely, I imagine that some teachers, uh, certainly one with cities, could do that, could tell them where it is or what happened. Definitely. <clears throat> that he didn't tell them doesn't mean he doesn't know. That he didn't tell them doesn't mean he wouldn't tell all of them. Meaning, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he had a, you know, I don't know if he even had a pledged disciple, not devotee, disciple, who sits day in, day out with him and um, even could be worthy of uh, transmission or worthy of being a successor. <clears throat> I would be surprised if he would never tell that one something like that to help them in some situation. Uh, and so all sorts of things are, are quite variable here. And, and people have to understand that. So that a teacher screams at a student doesn't mean the teacher's an asshole. But he could be. Meaning an asshole teacher would do that. There are bad teachers. There were student stories of Sogyal Rinpoche and other ones blasting people and the observer felt it was completely unwarranted. Well, later, that Sogyal Rinpoche got into a huge lot of trouble with some scandals. <clears throat> so, meanwhile, um, there are teachers that blast students um, rightly, in my view. You know, some people will... I mean, you know, this is just the, uh, the soup of uh, small-minded opinion. Uh, humanity or, or our world here of people. Everybody's got their opinion, you know. Everybody's got one, as they say. And so, or or many. So some people will think uh, a great attained being would never do that ever. Would never scream or shout or blast someone ever because they're all loving. They're perfected in love, so that means they never do that. Okay? I don't think that's the case, but some people have that view. Likewise, that... Um, it may be beneficent, doesn't mean it is. Meaning there are uh, bad teachers who scream at students because they're just jerks, and they're greedy, and they're small-minded, and uh, they're a fraud in process, a fraud in play. And they may do this or do that, that uh, they may do the same kind of thing, actually, that a true teacher would do, um, and in the one case, it's abuse, and in the other case, it's very subtle service. Meanwhile, there are certain things that don't happen, actually. You know, There's a story of Trungpa Rinpoche stripping naked to students or disciples or something in the early days of um, Naropa, in the 70s, I believe. Many people split from him at that point. Uh, it was some kind of event, and there were some people didn't want to participate, or they something, something, a couple. And um, 
man, woman, couple, and um, he ended up something like stripping them naked in front of the group and then, I don't know what, taunting them or something, something, all because they didn't want to join in what the group was doing. Um, I don't think beneficent teachers do that. Ever. Period. And there was something wrong with him. And, you know, maybe you've got to have some bad karma to die of liver cirrhosis from alcoholism and have a cursed successor. Uh, your son is cursed and your and your successor is cursed. The successor dies of age and scandal and the son gets thrown out of his own sangha. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a very high soul that fucks up in a very big way gets a very heavy karma, actually. Nobody wants to say this because everybody wants to suckle, <clears throat> but I don't know. Can't we not say it? Is there a problem to say these things? You know, because the reality is, like Yeshua said, there are false teachers, and this is a time of false teaching. And there's, be should be careful, <laughs> be careful, because if you end up with an abusive teacher you thought was a fully attained being, uh, his her crazy wisdom action, which you think is uh, his uh, action, shocking active and act. Shocking activity, you call crazy wisdom, um, radical uh, upaya in service to other, may actually simply be a manifestation of an immoral, abusive character who's fraudulently in the position of, uh, you know, guru, master, teacher, leader. <clears throat> so you got to be careful. So... Uh, the same type of reply from one teacher to two students may have a very different basis and uh, effect. And the people that came to him that lost their money and passport, maybe they should rightly have been told off for being careless. Um, and some people have the view, well, he knew where that stuff was or he could determine it psychically. Yes, I would imagine. And he didn't tell them how bad. Well... <clears throat> you're on your own, kid. You're on your own. And you've got to figure things out by yourself here. Uh, because you'll always find people to dis- who disagree. And you'll always find people who do agree. That they do agree. Does it mean you're right? That the others disagree. Does it mean you're wrong? Who knows? <laughs> you know, there are things that one may know <clears throat> that 10 out of 10 people will say isn't so. There are things that probably all of us, or at least some of us, believe or know from direct experience <clears throat> that 10 out of 10 other people will say is psychosis or crazy or who the fuck are you or what are you talking about? So 10 out of 10 <clears throat> uh, people will shoot down certain truths or realities that we consider such and so. Uh, <clears throat> and so where do you get your truth? Well, you better you better know yourself. You better have a you better have a um, a positive relationship with yourself, <laughs> a clear mind or a good heart, love, wisdom, discernment, kindness, harmlessness, commitment to honesty and truth. <clears throat> that that that's necessary. And uh, without that, uh, it's very hard to determine truth. I mean, truth is basically going to be a fifth, sixth chakra affair based on four, which was based on one, two, three, lower triad clearance, clearance of blockage. And so by, you know, ask the guy who wasn't fooled when everybody else was shocked at the uh, 
breakthrough of uh, of truth, of something that became true, or was finally realized. Um, look to the one who knew, who wasn't surprised and shocked because he, she knew it all along. That one knows, and nine out of ten, or ten out of ten, would say you're crazy, you're wrong. So that's why I wrote this chapter, standing alone, in Universal Vision. Really, it's very important. So anyway, going on. Uh, <clears throat> Harriet said, can you give me an example of this? Meaning, Nisargadot's taking care of his disciples. Can you give me an example of this? Or is this just guesswork? Are you doing just guesswork, David? David said, I remember a large fat man from Madras. He said that. Not allowed to say that these days, I guess. I remember a large fat man from Madras who came to see Maharaj with what he said was a problem. Quote, I've been doing japa, meaning recitation mantra, um, for many years, and I've acquired siddhis as a result, said he. If I'm very pleased with someone, very good things happen to him or her automatically. I don't think about it or do anything. It just happens by itself. But if I get angry with someone, the opposite happens. Very bad things happen, and sometimes the person even dies. How can I stop these things from happening? It's a great question, actually, if he sincerely wants not to hurt anybody. So this is the recollection of David of Nisargadot's uh, encounter with that man who had the city. And that kind of thing can happen, absolutely. You open the door to the city, and you can't stop it. I remember the story is that Rudolf Steiner um, was born or in his youth developed naturally cities, certain cities, and shut them down consciously later because um, he didn't want to be stuck on astral, uh, heightened astral perception or heightened experience of astralism. He didn't want his thinking, feeling, perception, mental experience process so heavily infiltrated by astral sense, astralism meaning uh, awareness of astral activity. He was either seeing or hearing or feeling or something. And he didn't want that because he, it, it was um, obstructive to higher mental development, higher mental spiritual development. Uh -huh. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And so uh, this is similar. So Maharaj Nisargadat told him, all these cities have come on account of your japa, meaning your practice, if you stop doing the japa, the cities will also stop. I don't think I can do that, replied the man. The japa has taken me over, has taken me over so completely, it's no longer voluntary. It just happens by itself, whether I want it to or not. That also can happen, actually. Meaning, the mind uh, gets attached to the uh, turning of the mantra. Uh, with japa beads, you know, now without the japa beads in the hand, in the finger beading, uh, the mind naturally repeats. I mean, I've had experiences of that. The mind, because of uh, an excess of concentration over mindfulness, uh, mindfulness as non-grasping attentiveness, um, pure attentiveness is naturally non-grasping. Concentration can be seen as grasping. It's not really. It's really just a focusing of attention. Um, the unfocused attentiveness, um, sati or mindfulness, those two need a balance. When you, um, 
I remember during the times in the monastery in the 80s, uh, early 80s, uh, I sometimes heard a jingle from television or radio or something, and I and sometimes it was hard to get out of my head. And sometimes we have that. We have a jingle in the mind, a, a you know, <laughs> brave new world uh, jingle uh, of, of advertising or something. And it's hard to kick it because the mind just keeps turning it round. That's an excess of uh, dharana concentration over sati mindfulness. It's an excess of focus of attentive attention focusing versus attention um, kind of hovering or um, non concentrating. So uh, when when attentiveness or attention is overweighted towards concentration, then it's hard to get stuff out of the mind. When attention is overweighted towards non-grasping sort of uh, presence, uh, then it's hard to concentrate. (laughs) So, um, smoke dope, you might be unable to concentrate. Uh, Take cocaine, (laughs) you you may be unable to stop concentrating or focus. Drugs can do things like that. Uh, different practices can uh, are definitely associated with concentration. Are are cons- heavy on concentration or heavy on attentiveness, and so one should know about that too. Anyway, so the man said, "I don't think I can stop it. It just happens by itself, whether I want or not." Maharaj repeated his advice, but the man wasn't interested in carrying it out. He looked very pleased with himself, and I got the feeling he had just come there to show off his accomplishments. My, accom- my opinion, David, uh, was confirmed when he announced that he was now willing to answer any questions. <laughs> he was now willing to answer questions from anyone in the room. He hadn't come there to receive advice. He had come to give it out. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, he's not actually saying, I have a problem, I need your help. He's saying, I have a condition... You see, uh, uh, and one, sh- and you should look up to me. So, again, <laughs> great teachers um, who open their open their space uh, freely uh, get guys like him come in. Sometimes, how should he treat him? So, Maharaj asked him to leave, and said that if he was really interested in his teachings, he could go in the evening to the house of one of those women devotees, a Sanskrit professor who sometimes did translations for him, and she would explain them to him. (laughs) He was told not to come back to the room. I suspect that Maharaj also wanted to keep him away from us because there was something strange and threatening about him. Yeah, mantra mantra spinners, mantra mantra yogis, uh, mantra, mantra yanis. Guys who run mantra in India commonly go black magical. That was the case with the guy that Nichinanda met at the wedding where there was a Dharma challenge and uh, the next day the guy was dead. So there, it's very common because a mantra is a fast path to city. Some mantra done a certain way, the right way, is some city. So, and Gautama talked about that in my chapter, The Miracle of Education. So you, can, you definitely can get magical power by mantra. Definitely. Uh, depends on, you know, uh, everything else is variable. 
<clears throat> what city, how long, how well, what mantra, how done, dot, dot, dot. But uh, guys like that are proud and commonly go straight black magical and then go to hell <laughs> after they die or they have some trouble. So it's a big issue. Uh, David said, I suspect Maharaj wanted to keep him away from us because there was something strange and threatening about him. I'm not a very psychic kind of person, but I could definitely feel an unpleasant energy coming off this man. It was something that made me feel physically queasy. That's right. He's got dirty field. He really, and some people have a dirty field. If you can sense that, you can see somebody comes into the room, you feel repulsed or queasy because, yes, they have a dirty energy field. They have all, they are a den, a den of negative entities, a, a den of astral um, at, attachments. <clears throat> a field of demons, uh, an energy field uh, for demons. Uh, there are some people like that. I've seen them, absolutely. He really did have an aura of bad energy around him. I checked with some of the other people afterwards, and some of them had felt the same way. All this took place in a morning session. That evening, the Sanskrit professor, the woman, showed up an hour late, looking very flustered. Maharaj immediately wanted to know what was going on, although he probably knew, he just wanted to hear she said, this man from Madras came to my house and I couldn't get him to leave. I told him that it was time for me to come here, but he wouldn't get up and go. I didn't really want to force him to go. He might have got angry with me and then I might have died. Maharaj appeared to be outraged. He puffed out his chest like a fighting cock going into battle and announced very angrily, no one can harm my devotees. You are under my protection. This man cannot do you any harm. If he comes to talk to you again, throw him out when, the, when it is time for you to come here. Nothing will happen to you. This is the only occasion when I heard Maharaj make a strong public declaration that he was protecting and looking after his devotees. Maharaj himself had no fear of people like this. He told us once about a yogi who'd come to his beady shop to test his powers. Beady is the small... Um, hand-rolled, leaf-rolled leaf cigarettes. The yogi, this yogi, apparently had many cities and had come to see if Maharaj, of whom he had heard many great things, could match him. Just like the guy that Nityananda met. <clears throat> um, they love doing battle. Maharaj just went about his business in the shop and refused all challenges to show off what he could do. Eventually, in an attempt to provoke him into doing something, the yogi said that he would curse him and make something very bad happen to him. Ding, 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 ding. There's a lot of problems in India, kiddies. And uh, one of the reasons is you've got a lot of guys, uh, more than a few guys like that. So you, uh, very black commonly uh, is attracted to very white. Very black. Black is attracted to white, not black skin. Black uh, energetic or lack of love light or heart chakra, lower triad blockage, but the guys are very strong in fifth, sixth chakra. So you can have a very strong sixth chakra activation, access to cities, um, and heart chakra blockage. And so, <clears throat> uh, I was cursed when I went to India by some uh, ganjetic um, sadhu, actually. I got violently ill um, for two days because we didn't give him money. So there are more than a few guys like that, and people, Indians, will tell you, if they're honest about it, that 
they're a little wary of sadhus on the street asking for money, partly because they'll curse you if you don't give them money. Yeah. Meanwhile, there are other sadhus who are beautiful souls. Okay. But <clears throat> there is a, a black magic's alive and well in India, and uh, it does have something. It's also in Israel, in Palestine. <clears throat> so uh, places that indulge in that commonly get trouble um, regionally. So then, goes on, bottom page 8, Maharaj apparently looked at him with complete unconcern and said, You may be able to pull down a thousand suns from the sky, but you can't harm me and you don't impress me. Now go away. <clears throat> and so, that that's, um, and I think we'll end there and uh, next time pick up at the top of page 9. Uh, that is indeed, you know, <laughs> uh, a mark of, of final attainment, is uh, utter fearlessness. You can say that the one who has final attainment has completely destroyed fear. Completely. I have not. <laughs> you probably have not. <clears throat> um, the one who's truly free is truly... Um, without fear at all. And that's not unwarranted. It's warranted. It's warranted by the fact that there's no longer a sense of a separative selfhood to protect or that could be vulnerable or could feel, um, could be indeed harmed. And that's exactly where the Chongsa talk and typical Taoist talk of uh, the Junren, the sage, you know, can't be burned, the swamp burns up, but he's not, the swamp lights, takes fire, he doesn't burn, the, the place is drowned, but he doesn't get wet, um, dot, dot, dot. So these, he, he's unaffected by the elements, that kind of thing. You can say that that's done by magic power. You can say that it's also um, natural to a final attainment. And, uh, you know, I'm not at final attainment, so I don't know. But, uh it, it's you see a similar kind of fearlessness with Nityananda is just you know <laughs> there's not even a visible personality there actually Nisargadatta you have a visible personality Ramana Maharshi maybe uh, Gautama no not much so that that's why to me you know uh, I I wouldn't say that that Nisargadatta or Ramana Maharshi don't have final attainment I guess they do okay that's easy to say right. I guess they do. But there's a trace of personality visible to me. That's not a problem. But he's clearly uh, fearless. And that's a sign of final attainment. And not just fearlessness, but um, he doesn't recoil one inch whatsoever in mind and then behaviorally to a avowed black magician who can do harm by magic. This is real, of course. <laughs> Everybody's got to know that. And uh, a similar story with Nityananda. The mantra magician was uh, traumatizing, terrorizing a village where he could get whatever he wanted by use of his mantra. And there's that wedding. And Nityananda was invited. This is in the South, I guess, in the 20s or 30s. And um, 
somehow um, they get into a Dharma battle type and um, uh, I forgot the whole story but the, the, the story was that um, uh, presumably Nityananda won the battle or something or was a challenge and he met the challenge and uh, they all were eating uh, leaves as part of uh, the, the meal the guy ate the leaves the mantra fellow got stomach ache, went to the hospital, next day's dead uh, after he lost the battle. And that was probably, uh, it was probably, you know, a bad Dharma battle to the death. The one who wins, uh, the, one, the one who loses dies. That's the plan. Now, whether that was communicated consciously, I don't know. Or um, Nityananda was communicating to the guy's higher self, I don't know. This is all, this is the kind of stuff that's above my level. And some people may interpret, uh, and I might interpret, and it might be partially correct. Um, but you really don't know the the head of the guy who's taller than you. You don't. You don't know. You can't look down on his. You can't look. You can't see the scalp of the guy who's taller. Those, those that those who are taller than we, uh, we cannot see their scalp. <laughs> so we can't really know their mind. I can't. And so. Meanwhile, there are scandal. There are scoundrels, <laughs> so you have to be careful. But Nisargadatta is a straight shooter and a fine teacher, and um, uh, it's very inst- instructive to see uh, his uh, way with students and uh, seekers. And he definitely did service. I mean, you know, if he really wasn't compassionate and loving or positive, he wouldn't have opened his house to people come and he just use me, basically. Come here and uh, let's let's argue and discuss uh, so you can get clear. That's a sacrifice on his part. Absolutely. So that's it for today. Next time I think we'll pick up at page 9, getting close to the end, then um, mix it up and go through more of the quotes of teachings from Nisargadot, which are really priceless and um, beautiful. So I hope it was helpful for you. And uh, the snake has uh, either gone outside or uh, found a nice hiding place. So take good care. See you next time. Good night.